One of the common places about news coverage is that uh, bad news makes for lots of attention. We don't often click on CNN.com and find all the good things that are happening. And it's also common that when atrocities or outrages take place, people will say things like, where was God when this was going on? And what is meant by this, I, I presume, uh, I don't think people literally mean uh, that God was away, but God should have done something to prevent this. And this is not at all a new situation. Uh, clicking on CNN.com is new, but asking where God is when bad things happen is not new. The psalmist calls out to God frequently and reminds God that if he fails to act, his detractors are going to say, where is your God? In Advent, on the other hand, Christians frequently say that God is coming. And to say that God is coming is to imply at some level that he's not here yet. Of course, again, we don't mean it literally in this way. So why do we say it? What are we talking about? Why do we celebrate Advent? What we are awaiting is the mystical celebration of God's word becoming incarnate of the Virgin Mary. And I called it a mystical celebration. I want to be specific about that. I want to contrast that to what we might call an historical celebration or a commemoration of a past event. In fact, calling to mind the Incarnation does a lot more than just remind us of something that happened once upon a time in the deep midwinter long, long ago. Rather, this mystical or spiritual celebration reactivates in us an awareness, a mindfulness of God's incarnate presence here and now in the church, in the hearts of the faithful, and in the sacramental signs of the liturgy. We can forget this, and this is why we have to ask God to come, uh, because it's not that God's absent, it's that we're absent. We need to remind ourselves to turn to God in these signs. So we can recognize these signs of Christ's presence precisely because he has revealed this saving presence by his incarnation. So, again, where is God? Well, the theologians will tell us that God is everywhere. And because God doesn't exist in a place, we could also say that God is nowhere. There's no place that we can say, well, God is only there and not there. Right? But because we are not like that, uh, we're embodied creatures, we're contingent creatures, we exist in one place only at any given time, unless we're given the grace of bilocation, which I'm guessing most of us don't have. Uh, we need signs to point us to God, to remind us to look at things from a spiritual point of view. And the key to this interpretation of, of God's presence is two-sided. God the Father, first of all, speaks through his word. So we hear God's word. Uh, God's word becomes man, is incarnate in our midst. But God also opens our ears to hear this word and understand it in the right way by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't hear this section of Luke's gospel in today's uh, reading, but before John was conceived... The angel Gabriel told his father Zechariah this, the boy is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Okay, so we're meant to anticipate this moment that happens in today's gospel. 
And we see the result of this Holy Spirit in John. Because John, even before he's born, recognizes God's Son while they're both still in the womb. So the answer to the question for John, where is God? There, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. There he is, says John the Baptist. And this is John's function. We see this every day in our icon. He points to Jesus. There he is. But he says this under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in a similar way, Our Lady was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And because of this, God's word, the word that God the Father speaks, takes flesh in her and becomes a man. Now, this means for us that any of us who hears hears God's word under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we conceive Christ in our hearts. And we also can, just like John the Baptist, see his presence in the world and point to it. Where is God? He's there. He's here. We can read the signs that are given to us and point them out to others. Now, St. Paul tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so we are spiritual persons, persons of the Holy Spirit, the, the only spirit worth having, to the extent that we recognize Jesus as Lord and present, to the extent that we see God's kingdom breaking into our world. In the monastery, we often talk about the spiritual interpretation of the scriptures. This is the interpretation that discovers Christ, that sees Jesus hidden behind the human words used by the inspired authors. So these words, if you read them without the Holy Spirit, they're a nice story about things that happened a long time ago. But when you read them with the Spirit, they are signs of Christ. They're ways of understanding Christ's presence now, what he is doing now in our own lives. And this means, in a Christian sense, it's not possible to be spiritual and not religious, by the way, uh, unless we're under the influence of of some false spirit. Because to be religious means to take on the whole way of life, the culture of the kingdom of God, to take on the kingdom's rituals, its celebration, its ways of speaking and acting and so on. It's to, it's to enculturate in a culture that's not of this world, but of the world to come. And so this celebration that we're at today, and our celebration of Advent and Christmas tomorrow, when it's properly received, when we enter into this in the Holy Spirit, this strengthens in us a spiritual point of view. We become really, truly spiritual persons. It's not something that we judge for ourselves. Well, I feel like a spiritual person, therefore I am. No, we actually are because we can point to Christ and say, there he is. In the Eucharist, and this is where we'll end today, we have a particularly important connection with the readings today. A particular way of reading the Blessed Sacrament from a spiritual point of view. John the Baptist, again, another interesting thing about him is he's a Levite. So we meet his father, Zechariah, when he's serving in the temple because he's a priest of the Old Covenant. So John, as his son, the the priesthood in the Old Testament was passed on in a family lineage. And so John himself is a priest. And when he baptizes Christ, and we'll celebrate this in a few weeks, uh, in a sense, he is making an offering of Christ the, the one true offering that is going to take away all the sins of the world. Uh, not the old sacrifices of the Old Testament, but the new one true sacrifice. In the baptism, he initiates the public process 
by which Jesus Christ will be offered as the one sacrifice to take away sins on the cross. And Christ can do this because he has taken on a body. He's entered into our world. And it's this body that he receives from the Virgin Mary that is offered and that we will receive in the Holy Eucharist today in this representation of the offering of Christ once and for all. So John's rejoicing in the womb today not only proclaims God's presence with us in Christ, but proclaims Christ as the Lamb of God who finally will take away the sins of the world. This is where God is, in this offering that brings us peace, this offering that refuses to engage violence with violence, but out of love embraces suffering and even death, the death that will unleash the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon all of us for the forgiveness of our sins. Here is God, and here is our reason for rejoicing. <laughs>